Amen. Amen. Well, hello, church. Open to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We will read from verses 1 through 10. We'll spend two weeks actually on this, this 10 verses. This is the word of God. That all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicion and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Father, your word is true. And Lord, we often believe lies. Lord, would you come and teach us the truth today in such a way Put it so deep within us, Lord, that it would change how we think, what we desire, how we live, how we order our lives. And Lord, that we would live more for your glory this week as a result of what we hear and see in your word right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to spend two weeks on this passage, as I, as I said a moment ago, um, under the theme of Christian contentment. Christian contentment, which I, I believe is the main point of this whole section. Uh, everything uh, flows into it or flows out of it. Um, you'll see there in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And so the the simple approach today that I would like to take is to, number one, I want to understand contentment, make sure that we have an understanding of what we mean by contentment, and specifically Christian contentment, and then I want to apply uh, Christian contentment to our lives, and I want to. We'll just look at verse three through five today, 
um, on that application, and then next week we'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll see the rest of what's in this text. So understanding Christian contentment, let me start by citing my sources. Um, I have three sources. That's pretty much it that informs what I'm going to say today. Uh, the first is the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul speaks about contentment more than anyone. He draws from Jesus, he draws from the Old Testament, and he gives us what we know largely uh, from Scripture about contentment. Second, uh, the school of Christian experience is a masterful teacher of contentment. Uh, the large part of my uh, Christian life, one of the main, if not the main focus of my Christian life has been seeking to find contentment in the Lord and to maintain that contentment. Um, and I've learned a lot uh, about it. I have a lot to learn, I'm sure. Um, but Christian experience is a good teacher of contentment. And then third, uh, the third source would be the Puritan uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, if, if, if I didn't quote him as a source, you should be concerned listening to this sermon today. I would even say that anyone who speaks to you about contentment and doesn't uh, quote the Apostle Paul or other scripture and Jeremiah Burroughs, you should question. Um, Jeremiah Burroughs, this, uh, the rare jewel of Christian contentment is, is the book. Uh, it is a, it is a uh, classic and it's free online. It's free to listen to audio online as well. I would highly recommend that uh, to you. Here's Burroughs' definition of Christian contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So I'm going to highlight this, the inward quiet spirit of submitting to the Father's provision. So it has this Christ, uh, this, this childlike dependence on the Father to provide. And, and it's a part of godliness. It's an aspect of godliness. It, it says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. So godliness at the inner heart level looks like uh, a resting in God's providence and provision for our lives. Um, now, here, here's where we need to start on understanding contentment. Let's just start with the word, contentment. It translated in all of our Bibles, I would assume, uh, as contentment or content. Um, the etymology of the Greek word, it's a compound word, auto, self, and arco, uh, is sufficient or sufficiency. Uh, together, you have self-sufficiency, you have uh, self-satisfaction, you have independence, uh, which might seem like, okay, that's what contentment means, self-sufficiency? That sounds like maybe we're getting a, a self-help or a man-centered teaching by Paul. What is, where is he going with this? He's rooting it in the doctrine of God, and specifically the doctrine of God called aseity or what some have called uh, the doctrine of God's self-sufficiency, or what's often uh, called by some theologians the independence of God. That's where, that's where this, uh, this word is, is rooted. 
so it, it teaches this, that God owes nothing to anything outside of himself, that he has existence and life and sufficiency in himself, and that God's act of creation even was not constrained by anything outside of himself. Even the inner impulse to create did not come from some need owing to any defect in God. Put simply, God does not need us or anything to be happy, to be content, to be full. He is eternally happy in himself as the thrice holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, God doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our praises and prayers. He doesn't need our offerings or money. He doesn't need our missions and evangelism. He doesn't need our social or political engagement. He doesn't need our godly parenting or godly marriages. He does not need. Need is a creature word that does not apply to God. And so whatever we do for him doesn't add to him Whatever we don't do for him does not subtract from him. He is the self-sufficient one. He is, another word we could use, content in himself, by himself, without anything. Um, So our sufficiency is in the self-sufficient God. Our contentment is in the contented God. We get this in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says this explicitly, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim that anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient. Do you hear it? Now, uh, we, could, we could keep compounding these type of theoretical uh, definitions, and I fear before we get out to our cars in a minute, we would forget it all. Um, and so, uh, here's what we know. Whatever contentment is, the American culture knows almost none of it. And I pick on America, not because other countries don't have problems with this, but because America's is significant. I don't know if you've been to a third world country or spent much time in third world countries, but one thing that you'll immediately notice is that they have more contentment than us. I mean, nine times out of ten, nine times out of ten, it's probably low uh, on the estimate here, but the poorer one is, the more contented they are, and the wealthier are dis- more discontent. Uh, spend a little bit of time with really wealthy people and you'll find how discontented they often are. Spend some time with people in third world countries, and you'll scratch your head and wonder how they find so much contentment with so little. Now, we, could, we, we need to broaden this beyond just monetary discontentments. Uh, how many are discontented with their spouses and therefore filing for divorce? How many are discontented at their jobs and constantly changing careers and jobs? How many are discontented uh, living in one city and so they move to another and then move to another uh, or or try to escape it all through vacation after vacation? 
hobby to hobby, TV show to TV show, sexual experience to sexual experience. What does all the restless moving reveal? This deep inner discontentment with what God has provided. And, And Jesus nails this issue in the most gracious way with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Um, revealing to her this inner thirst that she could not satisfy with husband after husband after husband. Remember what Jesus says to her in verse 18? You've had five husbands, and the man you're currently living with is not your husband. What is he doing? He's exposing in her this inner discontentment that her problem wasn't the man. The first one or the second one or the third or the fourth or the fifth, the problem is her heart. And so if you ask that woman, why all the marriages? She would have been like, well, the first one, I thought it was love. I thought he was the, and then it didn't work out. And then the, the, the second one, that was for financial security, but I realized he loved money too much. And, and then the third one, you know, the third one was for children. The third and fourth, really, for to start a family. And then those didn't really turn. The, the, fifth, the fifth man, I thought he really loved me. Until it became clear he didn't. And, and so the man I'm now living with, and you see, she keeps thinking, it isn't the man. Or, or she's thinking it is the man. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not the man. It, it, it's, it's that inner thirst that you can't satisfy in any man or any created thing. And so what does Jesus say to her? Everyone who drinks of this water, of the world's water, will be thirsty again. So you'll try for the next husband, or you'll try for uh, the next job, or the next church, or the next new possession, or experience. Over and over and over, drinking the world's water when Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. That's contentment. Remember what God said through the prophet Jeremiah to discontented Israel. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So after they've tried to drink, how thirsty are they still? After they've bought this and experienced this and watched this, how much the thirst grows as they drink and drink and return to the wells of the water that the world provides, they keep getting thirstier. They keep getting more miserable. And Jesus says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. This is Christian contentment. This is the gain in verse 6 that Paul says, the gain from Christian contentment with godliness. It satiates that thirst. And what what, what I want to just say from the beginning here is this. uh, That living water is something you can drink. You can... You can be satisfied in what God provides. You can. And that's a really important thing to see and to see in our text 
1 Timothy 6, 8, in our text there in verse 8, look what it says. Toward the end, look at this phrase. With these, food and clothing, we will be content. Not maybe, not can be, not possibly. We will be content. It is possible for a Christian to find contentment. Philippians 4, look what Paul says here. Not that I am speaking of being in need. So he goes, I don't, I don't have any needs. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So how do you look at your life and go, I don't have any needs? You learn, you learn what Paul learned. You learn to be content. And then he goes on, I learned contentment in whatever situation. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, because there is a difficulty in having a lot, and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, which is wildly taken out of context when an, uh, a, an athlete <laughs> speaks of that in some sports context. Um, a Puritan pastor um, gently exhorted his congregation. Uh, I thought it was helpful. He said, when somebody comes to you in your moment of trial and says, you must be content, say to them this, not must. I will be content. Because it's natural for me to be contented in my father's provision. He's a good father. And it's natural for me to be contented in Him. So not I must, but I will. And I get to be content in Him. And I've watched many godly saints in this church pass through very difficult seasons and trials and somehow maintain contentment. It's amazing. But you can learn this. It is an art. It is a, it is a skill Empowered by the strength of God, but it is something that the Christian can learn and must learn. Um, and so you say, how do I learn contentment? Well, there, there would be many ways, but a primary one is seeing the application from Scripture to our lives in different areas. And so that's what I want us to spend uh, the rest of this week and then next week looking at uh, application for Christian contentment. Um, next week, we're going to get into the parts here with, that deal with money. Um, but for now, verses 3 through 5, contentment and doctrine, which sounds really weird. What does doctrine have to do with contentment uh, a lot? Doctrine is where contentment goes right and where it goes wrong. And you can mark it down. You can always trace back the discontented heart to what truths Someone has believed or disbelieved. Verse 3 through 5, look at this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So if you don't intentionally embrace the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, if you don't forsake all your own ideas and opinions and embrace God's views on everything, you will become a devil. 
twofold son of hell, to use Jesus' words. Those discontented with what God has said will twist Scripture to make it fit their own ideas, their own conceptions of reality, their own standards of morality, their own personal experiences and interests. Those discontented with what God has said will say things like, well, I I know the Bible says, but I, I, I know biblically speaking, I shouldn't do this, or I shouldn't do that. I know biblically, but those who refuse to embrace the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, listen, are utterly arrogant and ignorant. That's what it says. They are conceited and understand nothing. And I... I think a lot of Christians are very naive on this point, reversing humility and arrogance right here. Look at what verse 3 and 4 says. Arrogance looks like what? Not agreeing with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. That person, verse 4 says, is what? Puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The discontentedness, the discontentedness, with what God has said might look like a professed atheist or agnostic who just completely disregards God and and biblical morality. It might look like that. Or it might look like that devilish serpent-like questioner who continually says of every biblical truth or teaching of Christian morality, does it really say that? Did God really say, as they uh, inquisitively deconstruct their devilish questioning of everything God has said, subtly questioning away the teaching that accords with godliness and the Bible's morality? And I can tell you... uh, Many, many times, I mean, I have, I have seen this many times, that favor is shown to the person. Uh, all the hopeful, all the hopefulness that this person is humble and genuine, and I want to fa- believe the best about everything they're saying, is given to the person who is questioning the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness and all of the skepticism is aimed at the person who goes, well, it just says it. I mean, I just believe it. Content. And they put their stake down on a moral issue. That person is is thought to be arrogant. How dare you say you know? How, who are you to say that you know you should or shouldn't do this? And they're the, the humble, dependent, uh, contented, simple Christian who just believes what God said is thought to be arrogant, and the person who constantly, cynically questions it is seen to be humble. That's wrong. Now, are there, are there arrogant Pharisees who, who uh, take doctrines and do? Yes. 
But look at, I mean, the text is clear. According to this passage, arrogance is the person who is discontented with what God has said, and humility is he who is content to embrace and submit to what God has said. Now you go, well, how do we know if somebody is, uh, has embraced the, the, the teachings of Scripture? And the answer is fruit. Fruit. Those who embrace the pure words of Christ, where it begins to take residence in their life, it, Jesus says it will produce good fruit. And those who ignore biblical teaching, where it has no practical effect on their life, will produce bad fruit. And, and Jesus says this clearly in Matthew 12, 33, the tree is known by its fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, listen, the contented or discontented heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you are justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Paul's making the same connection Jesus just made in our passage in verse 4, that the bad fruit of rejecting God's truth leads to what? An unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. That's the bad fruit that will come from someone's life who does not embrace wholeheartedly the words of God. And so, brothers and sisters, when someone's doctrine is off, their ministry is going to be slanderous, provoking envy and dissension, unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. I mean, they're, they're just not satisfied until they have stirred up controversy. Can't go a day without producing more uh, controversy-loving content, slanderous material. The internet is full of those who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels. It's the Christian tabloid gossip. It's out there. It's out there. And it's the fruit. The fruit it produces is envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. Guys, I spent a lot of time um, studying the Christianity of the past. And the more I do that, the more I become discouraged with the Christianity of the present. Uh, historically, uh, especially in times where the church was most zealous uh, for the Lord, which in my opinion uh, is during the Reformation time and in the Puritans, uh, we, we would not find perfect Christians or perfect men, but those who were concerned with the central doctrines of Christianity put the greatest emphasis there and on personal holiness. And it was just normal Christianity to go into the closet and spend time alone with the Father in prayer to read your Bible and think about holiness in all of life. That was normal Christianity. I, 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 I wish I could say that was normal Christianity today. We know it's not. We know many Christians spend little time with the Lord in pursuing holiness, and, and the Christian time they spend 
is spent listening to uh, podcasts or, or watching Christian content. Which, you think that's going to make a mature Christian? It will not. It's more damaging, and in many cases, uh, very damaging, depending on what we're watching. Um, it's interesting here. It says, unhealthy craving for controversy. Uh, look at verse 4 there. I, I got a few different translations. The New King James Version says that this person knows nothing, but is obsessed with disputes. The Legacy Translation says they understand nothing, but have a more a morbid interest in controversies. The Holman says the same, but it says a sick interest. And then the New American Standard says he understands nothing, but has a sick craving for controversial questions and disputes. And so this man, and I emphasize man because, you know, usually it's man, um, is largely ignorant about core doctrines of Christianity. So uh, the Trinity, the, any doctrines of God, the deity of Christ, justification, things related to the gospel, ignorant, spent no time studying uh, any of that. But flat earth, Bigfoot, UFOs, that's interesting. He puts no effort into studying the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ or the teaching that accords with godliness, but conspiracy theories, he'll happily devote hours. He has, uh, he, he's not found in the night watch praying for his family, praying for his country, seeking the Lord in prayer, but he's found at the night watch watching videos on government cover-ups. I've never seen a true conspiracy theorist that spent a lot of time studying the Scripture on the core doctrines, on the essential matters of the Christian faith. They just don't care. It doesn't interest them. What interests them is all the peripheral tertiary issues that don't relate to their life at all, that don't relate to the gospel at all. That's interesting. That's worth my time. That gets me excited. Unhealthy craving for controversy, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction. Their discontentment with God's words makes them verbally reckless, unhinged, and destructive in the church. Look at Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife in a whisper or gossip, separates close friends. I was, uh, I've just finished reading in uh, the book of Numbers, and it's shocking at numerous points uh, the way that Israel, after seeing all that God had shown them, all of his kindness and goodness toward them, they just continually grumble. At one point, uh, they're grumbling about not having meat to eat, all we have is this manna, and uh, they take that complaint to God. They grumble against the Lord, it says. But then it's interesting how that grumbling against God with their discontentedness against God quickly turns to discontentedness toward Moses. And then that discontentedness toward Moses, uh, a few people, Miriam and Aaron, uh, start getting specific with their criticisms about Moses, 
And because they don't have anything legitimate to bring out, they have to, they have to criticize the Cushite woman that he married, which wasn't a sin issue at all. Where, where, where did all this come from? It came from a discontented heart. And God, by the way, defends Moses and inflicts judgment on those who are nitpicking and criticizing him. And Moses, pure-hearted Moses, prays for them. Prays for God to have mercy on them. A discontented heart makes the tongue a dangerous weapon. A discontented heart makes the tongue a dangerous weapon. Church, I I, want to just be very clear about this. Someone who does not care about what God has said and God's truth will not care to truthfully represent you with their words. They will not care. It will not be hard for them to slander your character without evidence. It will not be hard for them to judge your motives and impute on you bad ones. It will not be hard for them to believe the worst about you. Because their heart is in such a condition, they find it near impossible to believe the best about you. Because they have not truly embraced the sound words of the Lord, the ideas and truths that matter to them most will be their own. And many a good churches are ruined, not because of heresy theologically, but because they didn't silence the lies and the gossip and the slander relationally. You know, when you speak out against someone and say something, uh, you can't get that back. It goes out and it does damage more than we would ever believe. Many a good church has been ruined because relationally they didn't obey or take heed to the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. But guys, when, when the teachings that accord with godliness are embraced, not just at a theological level, but at a relational level, love will always be the fruit. Love is always the fruit. When When sound doctrine theologically is embraced, it leads to love being manifested relationally. It always works that way. That's always the pattern. And when you find someone not intentionally loving the church, you found someone not abiding in the teaching that accords with godliness. And we get this at the beginning of the letter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says something similar. He says, I urged you that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrines or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship that is from God, that is from faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from, where does love come from? It comes from a pure heart. A good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these, swerving from what? From love, from a a pure heart, have wandered into vain discussion. And so when your heart isn't firmly planted in good doctrine, what happens to your heart? It becomes hardened. It becomes cynical. It becomes critical. And when your heart is in that cynical place, you can't love. And and if you can't love, 
What are you doing with your mouth? This is the pattern. Jeremiah Burroughs says this, Some people cannot restrain the unrest of their spirits, but in their words and behavior they reveal what woeful disturbances are within them. Their spirits are like raging seas, cast forth nothing but mire and dirt. They are troublesome not only to themselves, but also to all with whom they live. Others, however, are able to restrain the disorders of their heart, like Judas, when he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. But even so, they boil inwardly and eat away like an ulcer. David speaks of some whose words are sweeter than honey and butter, yet they have war in their hearts. And, and, and church, I just want to remind us how um, you think, who's he talking to right now? I'm talking to everybody. And every church in this city, and every church in this country, and every church, this, to almost every church, Paul says these same things. He gives these same warnings. Romans 1, verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders. Okay? List these things off. This is what sin looks like. It can happen even in the Christian heart. Uh, he mentions in our uh, book, 1 Timothy 5, 13, we looked at a few weeks ago regarding widows. He says, they learn to be idlers, and not only idlers, but gossips, which seems to be something you do when you just don't have anything better to do. You just might start gossiping. Proverbs 6 tells us that God hates six things. There's six things he says he hates. Two of those are repeated. We hear it twice in that list of six. The one who sows discord among the brothers. Two times. God says he hates the one that sows discord. And to you know, my experience, and I certainly don't know everybody's heart or motives on everything, but I have never seen someone intentionally try to do that in the life of this church, to my knowledge. Never seen anybody go, I want to divide this place. You know, <laughs> I've, I've seen division happen many times, though. Unintentionally. Something to be very careful about. 2 Corinthians 12.20, Paul has two fears when he comes to Corinth. Listen to this. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come to you, I might find you not as I wish. Here's the first fear. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I'm, I'm concerned about that when I show up at Corinth. And I'm concerned, second fear, I fear that I may, may mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the, um, uh, the impurity and sexual immorality, the sensuality that they have practiced. These are in the churches among Christians. Ephesians 4. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and this is the same church that Timothy's pastoring, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that you may give grace to those who hear. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be 
kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And to the church in Galatia, Galatians 5.15, he says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you were not consumed by one another. And I think that that warning isn't just Paul trying to come up with a clever way to say, don't fight. When he says, don't bite and devour one another, that's actually going back to, I, I believe, Old Testament prophecies given to Israel, where they literally bit and devoured one another, literally, eating their own children under God's judgment. I was watching a documentary with uh, my sons uh, recently on the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And uh, at one point in the siege, the, the ensuing forces circled Jerusalem so that Jerusalem can't leave to get any resources, essentially so they'll starve to death. And so as starvation begins to, to sink in, they resorted to eating, even eating their own children biting and devouring one another. And Paul's using this language that was used for Israel saying, don't do that with your own body, with your own family. Why would you eat and devour one another? You see how serious this is. The destructive nature of the discontented heart in a church, in a family, in a marriage, not just heresy from a pulpit, but slander spoken in a bedroom, in a car, gossip that tears down a brother or sister, careless words like Proverbs says, like sword thrusts. Not like the Bereans eagerly examining the Scriptures to obey sound truths, but listening to teaching with cynicism. What's he going to say wrong? Where can I... He's got, I know he's wrong. I'm listening like that rather than listening like the Bereans going, is it true to Scripture? I want to obey the Lord. Give me something true to do, to see more of Christ, to see more of the Lord. But that discontented heart is very problematic. Now, I know many of you here will not have this discontented heart in it, um, you know, in these ways I'm describing but someone else in the church might, and they might come to you and vomit up all their slander and gossip and criticisms. And we need to be wise about the danger and the destructive nature of what the discontented heart is able to accomplish. And where, where do we want to help that person get to? To a place of love. 1 Corinthians 13 is very clear. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. I take that to mean believes the best in people. Is charitable in our thoughts toward others, especially our brothers and sisters in our own church. Now, there may be uh, some in a, in a room this size, I don't know who it would be, but I, I suppose there could be some who actually, even in this moment, have a discontented heart that has led you to be relationally in conflict with others in the church. 
And if that's, if that's where you're at, I would actually, as, at a, as a practical pastoral uh, encouragement help to you, tell you, consider not coming to the table this morning until you deal with that. I mean, this is actually what Paul said to the church in Corinth. Because of their disputes and problems among each other, he said, some of you are weak and ill. Some of you have died because of this. You're eating and drinking judgment on yourselves. That's what it means to, to take the supper in an unworthy manner. It means to, to not be in one with the people of God in which you take the supper with. Consider that. I want to say this to everyone else in the room. Uh, one last thing about contentment here. Uh, the most glorious verse that I have I've loved on a weekly basis um, is Psalm 23.1 that says this to us all. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Another, a literal way to render that last part, I have no need. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I'm content. He's a, he, he provides green pastures and still waters. He restores my soul. Psalm 73, 25, David says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs expounds on that. He says, there's nothing in heaven or earth that can satisfy me but yourself. If God gave you not only earth but heaven to rule over the sun and moon and stars and have ruled over the highest of the sons of men, it would not be enough to satisfy you unless you had God himself. There were lies there lies the first mystery of contentment. And a truly contented man, though he is the most contented man in the world, is the most dissatisfied man in the world. That is, those things that will satisfy the world will not satisfy him. I mean, guys, what can the devil do to a, what can the devil do to a man who doesn't long for what the world provides? What, what, what foothold does he have? What, what can the flesh lust for if the spirit's in full control? How can you throw off course the Christian whose heart is contented in what's in heaven? This is why the Apostle Paul is an unstoppable force, contentedness. That was the secret. There was nothing that you have that he needs. There's nothing that you can leverage to manipulate him with. There's nothing you can dangle before him to entice him to go astray because he's saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do whatever you want to me. <clears throat> I want to end with this story. Um, in the late 1800s and 1900s, there's a band of missionaries that left Europe to go into Portugal to preach uh, to this unreached area. Among those missionaries that went was a man named Eric Baker. Uh, this man knew hardship. Not only was it hard, the area that he was ministering in, it was poverty-stricken and all sorts of difficulties in that regard, um, but also the circumstances were difficult in Portugal. 
because the local parish ruled uh, priest, the parish priest ruled with an iron fist. And he suffered much bringing Protestant Christianity into these hostile regions. In 1939, if you remember that time stamp, uh, the Second World War broke out. And the thing, however bad things were, they had gotten so bad that he thought it best to send back his wife, his six children, his sister, and her three children back to uh, England until the war was over. And I just, I mean, can you imagine standing on that, that harbor in Portugal and watching your wife, your six kids, your sister, and her three kids sailing off out of sight into the ocean and you're standing there alone. And within that same week, that very Sunday morning, he gets a phone call, or not a phone call, a telegram at that time, that said, torpedo hit ship, all is lost. What do you do in that moment? What, what, what are you, I, I would never judge a man in that moment to go into a deep depression to leave the mission field. He, he gathers the little church that he had planted that Sunday afternoon and led them in worship. And he opened the service with these words, my family made it safely to their destination. Which they didn't know what that meant. They thought they made it back to England. It wasn't until later that night that it became clear to them he was speaking of their heavenly home. What do we do with a man like that? <laughs> Who's so seeing things through an eternal lens. Who literally says to live is Christ, to die is gain. I even view my family through that lens. To say that it's better that they are with Christ than with me. Godliness with contentment practically looks like when your God wills sickness, you say, then it's better to be sick than healthy. When my God wills weakness, I guess it's better to be weak than strong. When my God wills poverty, well, it must be better for me to be poor than rich. When our God wills reproach, it must be better than honor for us. And when our God wills death, it is better to die than to live. Uh, that is Christian contentment. And brothers and sisters, it's available to us. It's something that can be learned. And it's something that the Lord can continually give to us. I would encourage you as you come to the table today to even ask the Lord for growth in that. Uh, for the ability to find in Him all that you need. If you are baptized, having trusted Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, uh, please join us at the table today. If you're in good fellowship with the local church, join us at the table today. Um, if you will be refraining, uh, I hope you will consider what Christ offers you. He is a mighty Savior. He is a mighty Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, because you have no needs, because you are all sufficient, 
and all life is in you. We can live and be content with what you give. And we praise you, Lord, for your spirit that lives within us, that enables us to find contentment even in the worst of circumstances and to not be taken away with all the luxuries and blessings that you give even in the best of circumstances that we can continually find you to be what we need. Help us in this. Grow us in this, Lord. Teach us what it means to be contented in you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.